gentlemen welcome to another episode of bobcast with you as always is bob live in the lounge staring at the ouija board when i woke up this morning i had a conversation with myself in the year 1987 and i was like son one day you're going to meet the leader of the monster squad and you're going to be able to talk with him in depth about his career growing up in los angeles his endeavors and that 1987 version of myself, I'm like, no way, dude, it's impossible. It's, there's no such thing as the internet. There's no such thing as Zoom. There's no such thing as podcasts. What, how is it possible? Because what, you made some little like business cards in school and thought that you had your own monster squad? Nah, sorry, buddy. There's no chance. But then I slapped myself and I was like, he's going to be on the Bobcast, okay? He's going to be on the Bobcast in the year 2021. When I was seven years old, it was like August and I remember seeing this poster like there was like this one movie theater that we always went to and it was a thunderstorm like kind of evening which is appropriate saw the poster and I was like what is that because my dad and I grew up with like you know showing me like you know classic Universal Studios monsters and I couldn't wait to see the monster squad um I was blown away by it uh I was so stoked when it came out on cable and I was even more stoked that as I got older I'm 41 now that the Monster Squad stayed in pop culture relevance. Uh, in the year 2018, today's guest released Wolfman's Got Nards, which is an awesome documentary if you're a fan like myself. And um, we're gonna chat a lot about a lot of these things. And I'm just super stoked today to have Mr. Andre Gower, who played Sean Crenshaw on the Monster Squad on the Bobcast. How are you, sir? Uh, pretty good. That's a pretty rad intro. Hopefully uh, I can live up to that. That was uh, a good story. I like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like, it's crazy too. Cause like with technology, you know what I mean? It's like, this could never be possible. Like, you know, when you're a fan of like, if something as a kid and you live in Philadelphia and like, you know, Los Angeles is a world apart, you know what I mean? You're like, there's no way, you know what I mean? But like the film meant so much to me, you know? And like, and I was trying to like think about why it meant so much to me and why it continues as a 41 year old. And I was just thinking, it's not just about the monsters, you know, there's like so many themes in there that resonated with me into my adulthood, like case in point, like don't judge a book by its cover, scary German guy, you know what I mean? Like, that was a really good lesson for me as a like seven, eight year old to be like, no, there's more to the story, you know what I mean? And like, there were so many different parts where I was like, you know, and like also too, I mean, like sexuality as a teenager, like I asked my grandmother what a virgin was, like, there's so many elements to this film. So I'm, so happy that you are like still championing it, you know, and like you made this wonderful doc documentary. I guess, you know, I mean, growing up in Los Angeles, you know, and, you know, I, like I, I knew you grew up there. What, what part did you grow up in? I'm a Valley kid. So I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. So uh, all the cliches are true. And, you know, we wore, you know, boxers and slip on vans and rode our bikes in the neighborhood and <laughs> goofed off in the up in the hills and our bikes uh, a la et and um and in fact you know they shot et in uh in my neighborhood that i uh, grew up in so wow, in fact one one of the houses i lived in uh at one point uh, after they uh actually shot et i believe uh was in the background of of, of a shot and then 
you know, it's all up in the north end of the valley on a lot of those streets and, you know, riding the bike. So that was, uh, you know, you, you watch E.T. and you're like, yeah, that's what we did every day, <laughs> except for play with aliens. But so, so um, growing up in, in the valley, what was it like knowing just down, you know, Laurel Canyon or whatever was, you know, Hollywood and like cinema and stuff like that? Was it the driving point for you to be a child actor? no because it wasn't really you know honestly at that point I started so early um you know I started doing commercials and print work and tv spots and movies uh when I was five and my sister uh is a few years older than I am so she was in the entertainment business before I was and so I was always around it and inside of it and you know around five when it was uh you know kind of that time I guess that you know, people decided that uh, you're next. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, I think especially with really young kids, like five, six, uh, you're, you're not doing that on your own, obviously, right? Uh, but I think that, you know, as other people, usually your parents um, or relatives or people you know, you know, inside the business are, you know, putting you inside of that, you know, kind of world and, and seeing if it works for you. And I think definitely with a lot of younger kids, um, it's if you some just don't like it some are uncomfortable uh, some are scared you know it's like we're five six years old we're scared of everything you know but some people are just really comfortable and uh, I think for me I had always sort of been around it uh, I kind of I always say I was just more like a duck to water I guess because I grew up in the water you know uh, metaphorically and it was just part of my being at the time and I don't know what it's like to not be in it. Uh, but it was certainly as it was certainly interesting. Uh, you know, it, I never saw it as a um, as a distraction or as a, a deterrent to kind of my quote unquote regular kind of world or, you know, some people call it the normal world uh, that all my friends in the neighborhood were living. Uh, I had that too. Uh, I had a very balanced kind of uh, uh, existence during that time where we made sure that, you know, uh, you know, when you weren't working, you went to, you went to school, like actually physically went to a school, which you're but supposed to. You enjoyed to. it though, right? I, and I love, I loved going to school. I loved shows on screen. You know what I mean? Like you're a young kid, like you, how old were you when you uh, did the A-team? Oh, I think A-team was probably t uh, 10 or 11, 10, 11, so maybe so, 10. I, I have like a real quick or question about earlier. that. Like, were you yeah. into the A-team? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, it so was. I was in the eighteen too. So what was that? So like you're walking onto the set of basically yeah. like what today's equivalent of the Mandalorian for children. I had the eighteen right. box, you know, the, you know the thermos. Right. I was like, dude, I want to be in the squad, the remake, whatever. You know what I mean? But like that original film, what was it like for you being ten years old walking onto that set? You know, obviously walking onto a set like eighteen, especially at that age. Uh, and that's a great comparison of uh, you know Mandalorian to today's kids because it really was that. You know, you know, Thursday night, I believe on NBC Adventure, like, you know, at eight o'clock so kids could watch it. And, you know, we went nuts over the A-Team because it was just so cool. Uh, you watch A-Team as an adult and it's so corny, but it's so awesome still. But yeah, you know, my dad and I watched A-Team when it was on. Uh, and oh, wow. obviously, um, you know, you get a chance to be a guest star on, you know, an episode. And this one was even cooler because it, it was, uh, I, I love, you know, 
being in the mountains and I love trees and I love rivers and lakes and stuff like that. And this episode of the A-Team, we didn't get to spend it on a stage or on a street in the valley or in downtown LA. We got to go up into the mountains and be lumberjacks with the A-Team. So it was, you know, how cool it it was not only cool, but even cooler (laughs) what you got to do in the show. And, you know, as a fan, as a kid first, and then as a fan of the show and then to show up, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's pretty awesome. But you also know that you're there to work and you understand that. And hell, by that time, I think half my life had been spent working. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's just, an, it's, you, you try to be as professional as possible. And I think that's really the key where a lot of kids uh, in the business uh, either, you know, make it or break it uh, to where it's not, you know, kids can get on a set and be completely different than they were in an audition, audition in an audition space. And uh, that happens a lot. That's why a lot of people don't like to work with kids. Uh, you know, they're, you know, they, they may just not feel good that day. Uh, they may be scared. It's a whole different environment. Uh, you've got to pretend to be someone else in a different space that you've never been in sometimes. And I think some kids, you know, just don't uh, tune into that as well as others. And it's not their fault. It's just a natural thing. I mean, it's a hard thing to ask a, a young kid to do. Uh, I just always felt kind of comfortable around it, no matter what I was doing it. But yeah, you add in kind of the coolness of what you're doing, then yeah, you notice that as well. And yeah, yeah you know, kind of 18 was, was uh, of the really younger years was, you know, was probably a, a highlight, even though it was just one episode, but that, you know, that was pretty cool. And uh, I, I think if I remember correctly, like my first, you know, my, my first scene that we even shot was also, I think the first scene on camera you know, it's like, oh, here's Mr. T, a guy that's awesome on the show, who, by the way, scared the shit out of me in Rocky Three. by the way. Clubber I did not Lang. like Clubber Lang. He was scary to me. But here's this other guy, and he's completely opposite than that. He was like a super nice dude. And I've got to climb on his back and get a piggyback ride for Mr. T and go talk to Murdoch, who is by far my favorite character on that show. Yeah. And you can actually watch. I'm actually I'm actually laughing. Like I'm actually I yeah. can't. It's hard for me to not break while Dwight Schultz is going crazy, you know, talking to B.A. And I'm like, what is happening? Uh, but you try to hold it together. I uh, I'm interested in your process as a like I'm a, I, I, I'm a screenplay writer and like I'm I'm interested in like knowing what is it like for a child actor like what was your process to memorize your lines back in the day like I'm talking like when you started like you know getting like you know these great roles which required you know some great monologues you know what I mean like what was your process I think starting off very early you're obviously you know you're working with like your mom or your sister or your dad or something running lines and and just kind of getting that cadence back and forth because that's that's what's important about not only auditioning, but also reading a screenplay and understanding what's happening in a scene is you've got to put yourself when you're just reading the words by yourself, you've got to put yourself in a space with other people or whoever many people are in the scene and kind of read it with that cadence. And I think I started doing that very early on because you knew that's how you were going to have to apply it. And I still read things like that today. I, I can read a magazine article, a newspaper article or something online, and I read it sort of in a flow or a cadence. And if it's just a singular author writing a story, I read it like if they were giving a monologue or giving a speech with it. And I put inflection into the, and I try to read it sort of in this flow. Uh, but obviously, but, or if I'm reading a book, you know, I will in, you know, I will imagine characters saying, you know, these yeah. words in, 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 in their style and you kind of create the movie in your mind when you're reading a book. So you do the same thing with a script. 
but most people don't realize that until later, but I was doing it with scripts at a very young age. Uh, you know, you run lines with your mom or your manager or your dad or something like that, or the other, other actors. I think for me, Norm, uh, just at that time, I got very lucky because I'm, I, I'm very visual and I see words on a page and it kind did of- Did you read comic books as a kid? I, I did, but I wasn't a comic book junkie. Like I didn't, I mean, I have some badass stuff in the garage, but I wasn't an adamant. I didn't really get into the universes um, because what I like about comic books is you can go off and disappear into those worlds, which are amazing. And you can read those short little bubbles and, and, and they're just really exclamatory. Um, reading a script, I was... And even right now, I'm envisioning a page of a comic book and looking, you know, at the bubble and, and watching action and uh, words on a page, they just sort of imprint kind of with an image on me. And so it, I don't know if I have a photographic memory or it's photo, you know, you know, intensive or wh whatever you want to call it, but recalling words and learning dialogue came fairly easy to me, which even, you know, much to the chagrin of other actor friends of mine that have a hard time getting dialogue down and, and learning lines and, uh, I, I think the secret of it was just starting really young starting and young. most, you know, and, and, and I think when you see uh, uh, us as adults now and we're reading lines, it's, it's just, it's just part of your life and you, you learn however your process is. Mine was, I could read it a few times and know the scene and that's about it. And if you run it with somebody, even the audio, yeah, so, you know what I mean? Like, and I, and I think as you look at it later, it even, uh, there's different, uh, stages of like working on a scene before like until you get to the camera and you're reading the page by yourself in your room or whatever and that you know the the actual image of the words on the page are in your brain and then you're saying them out loud to yourself so it's sort of like a Pimsleur language thing you know repetition but then you start doing it with someone else so you're getting the you know you're getting the verbal cues and cadence from them but what triggers your next line is obviously the end of their previous line and so that audio from them is imprinting auditorily with you in your brain. So now you've got three things imprinting on your brain. And then if you start blocking out a scene and, and learning where you're supposed to be in a space, and then, then there's a camera, then that's now physical dimension, you know, actual physical dimension of movement. So there's everything kind of reinforcing everything. And I, I think that's kind of a really interesting way to look at it. And maybe that's what it is. And most of us are just unconscious of that. But What was it like when you first read the script for Monster Squad? You know, I remember the, the awesome things I remember about the original drafts of Monster Squad uh, were the things that aren't in the movie. <laughs> Can you talk about it? Yeah, yeah. it's, um, you know, I, we mentioned it a little bit in, in the documentary, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was obviously like a, a, a longer script. Our, our shooting script was very short, like very short page count. Yeah, how many pages? I think our shooting script that we ended up shooting was 80 something pages. Yeah. And uh, which translates into like an 83 minute movie yeah. or whatever it is. You know what's crazy? But, they don't make movies like that no more, Andre. They're, they're starting to. But they are, but they, they went away to. for so long. It was like, you could yes. get a really solid story in 89 minutes, 90 minutes. You know what I mean? And like, they started like somewhere towards the end of the 90s, early thousands. Like, let's push it. Gladiator was a little bit long. Eh, they'll stay in the cinema for three and a half hours. Why not? You know, like. But yeah, I was always fascinated by that. Like, how short was the script? Was there other like you know scenes that weren't involved? Oh yeah, there was awesome stuff. I mean, it was you know, I, and I think Fred and Fred always jokes that Shane's original draft was like four hundred pages or something, mm -hmm. and you know, it trimmed it down. But I think the original draft I read was probably you know hundred, 
10, some page, like normal. And the cool thing was, is, is in the opening kind of sequence uh, or in the cold open where it's, you know, back in 1887 and, you know, it's, uh, Van Helsing and his kind of army of freedom fighters are going after Dracula and the monsters at that time. And I think in the original draft, there was like 20 or 50 sailing ships coming on shore and like zeppelins in the air and like an army of a thousand dudes storming a beach and like going through the woods and fighting all these vampires and stuff and then attacking the castle, which would have been rad. And then the thing that I always lament that's not in the final cut, one of the two, two things really, but one is that, you know, they have the crawl, you know, at the beginning of, you know, a hundred years ago, blah, blah, blah. And then they blew it. Um, we don't ever understand how they blew it. And it just cuts to us in present day, which is kind of a funny joke, but it leaves a big hole of like, well, what do you mean they blew it? What's the problem? And the problem was that they actually chased Dracula down, Duncan Regeer. They stake him up against a tree and kill him and put him in a wagon. And then they go up into the castle, I think, to go do kind of the, you know, read the spell and, you know, open limbo and close the books. And they leave a... I always call him the red shirt kind of like, you know, red shirt kind of guy to guard the body of Dracula in this wagon near, near a campfire. Yeah. And, and of course uh, the, the, the overall thing about the final script that we had and the movie you see, and then the original drafts, everything that Fred and Shane write well, to this Dracula, day. Is Dracula come off the, 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 the yeah, yeah. No, I'm getting to it. I'll get to that. Okay. okay. To <laughs> don't, don't skip uh, that. There's always uh, setups and payoffs, you know, mm -hmm. from, page one to page 100. And then in between, there's always little circles of setups and payoff. That's how they write. And that's why some of their, that's why their stories are, are really cool to just kind of, you know, flow through. So this one ended up being a setup that you got the payoff at the end of the movie, but you didn't know it was a payoff. And so this guy is guarding the body of Dracula that they stake against a tree and um, out of the woods come three vampire brides. And he's like, oh shit. And so like he picks up a crossbow, shoots one of them, the other one's close, so he has one in his hand and stabs her. And then the one comes up behind him and starts choking him. And he's struggling for his life. And he's like flailing around and he finds a stake, grabs it and kills her. Like, oh, okay, I made it. All right, I'm da, da, da. But of course, what he did is he grabbed the stake out of Dracula. That, and as we know, if you unstake a vampire, they come back to life. And it's a great shot as a deleted scene where this guy's like bending over the three vampire brides by this campfire and he's like, ha ah, right. Like I did it. And Duncan's Dracula sits up in the wagon and then it cuts to present day. So is that a, can that's that how they seen, blew it? Can that be seen online? Yeah, I think that is online. I, I don't, I, I think I might've, I've seen this storming part, but this, yeah, part if it's on the, if it's on, it's either on YouTube somewhere, maybe not still, or on the deleted scenes on the 2007 DVD. Uh, I can't remember. I haven't, I haven't plugged that in. I don't even know where it, my DVD player is, but um, it, it's a great scene. And I always thought it was like a big hole in the movie that yeah. would have added just, you know, two or three minutes. But what it is, is that's a setup to Ryan Lambert as Rudy's awesome payoff at the end in the street where he fights the three vampire brides. Oh yeah. So yeah. it's just a, you know, it's a full circle thing, which is, Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That I mean, shot so well and, and Ryan's so good in that. So and it, it connects to the very beginning of the movie. And so that was one thing. And then the other thing that I thought is a, was a, was a giant uh, part of the story right in the middle as, as the action starts ramping up when we go to the house to look for um, the amulet. 
and you know we're there uh and and we walk in the house and of course this ends up you know changing in the movie but we go in the house and there's a guy there and like i can't remember like if he was supposed to be like i always joke like i can't remember if he was supposed to be like hi i'm van helsing's great great grandson or something <laughs> or like he's a real estate agent or something. i just can't remember yeah. he's like and i'm here like maybe you guys can help me and what it is it's the scene right after we're in scary German guy's house. And yeah. again, there's a setup that we don't get the payoff. And he says, maybe you thought I was a vampire. If I, well, if I was, I wouldn't have a reflection. Yeah. And then we pay attention to the Holocaust reference right after that constantly, instead of him knowing about reflections and vampires, because cut to the next scene or a scene after that, we're in this house with this guy. And he's like, yeah, come on downstairs and help. And we go through this house and we're walking in there and it was the character of Sean realizes we're walking through, we go by this big kind of crusty mirror or something in this old house. And Sean sees everybody, but this guy. And oh, then, wow. then we realize we're in trouble because this is That's Dracula tricking us. And then we scatter in this house and we start running a rubble. We're already like down in the catacombs or whatever. And it turns into the, what I always thought was a, a cool Scooby-Doo episode because every level we go onto, we run into a monster and we have to run around and, and escape. Um, I guess on the day or on the, on the week or whatever, they, it, time, budget and whatever, they just kind of crammed all that into what we see in the final film. And like, there's no extra guy there. We just walk into the house and we encounter all the monsters on the same floor and we start running around and, uh, and try to escape with the amulet. And then of course, that's where we get the, you know, the famous kick him in the nards and then Horace actually kicks him in the nards and says the great line, Wolfman's got nards. Was it, was it cut for like pacing? Like, I mean, like, would it, did they want it to be so short? I, like, or... you know, I don't, I, I think Fred explained it one, one time, long time ago. I think it was more, uh, I, I think it was budget and timing of where we were in the shoot schedule that they had to find a way to get around this giant, because that ended up being a giant scene. Like yeah. you'd have to build three sets of each level or four sets of this house um, we were on location for the exterior. We were on a stage for the interiors. And I mean, that's a big build. So that's a lot of extra time of set build, a lot of extra time of moving. So you probably have almost an entire half a day on each level or an entire day to get on the camera because it's really an action sequence. Um, and what was, you know, the everybody's, you know, a lot of people know the story that the guy that they had to play the guy, the actor they had on, was on set apparently all day. And then that's when they ended up kind of reimagining and they took that guy out. I wonder and who that they, guy is. <laughs> they, had, they had brought a guy back that had auditioned for Dracula that everybody thought was great. He was a oh, young wow. Irish, a young Irish actor, had this great screen presence and a cool voice. Uh, and they thought he would have been a good Dracula, but Duncan Regeer auditioned and, you know, became Dracula. And he's a fantastic Dracula. He's the best on-screen Dracula, I think, you know, since... Bella Lugosi, I, he, his He's performance still that. to this day. I mean, my son's five, right? And like, I was like, hey, man, you want to watch a really cool movie? I don't know <laughs> if it's going to be too scary. And he's like, I got this, Dad. I watch Mando with you. We're good, you know? And I'm like, all right, it's called The Monster Squad. And like, we get to the, you know, the storming of the castle. And like, he, I just remember looking over at me like, bah, Dad, I don't know, <laughs> you know? And like, I was like, just trust me. But I mean, there's so many great performances. I mean, like, the crazy thing too is like, I did some in-depth research one night about like, you know, I was just like, well, how did like Shane get away with, you know, using these classic characters, which led me towards like, you know, the whole idea of the copyright of, you know, Bram Stoker and like the things you can do 
things you can't do with Frankenstein with the bolts and stuff. It's fascinating, really. You know what I mean? Like the, the little things that are done that really, you know, allow you to use these characters in this film is just, I mean, if it didn't happen, it, there would be no Monster Squad and there would be no Wolfman's Got Nards, you know? I'm, and by the way, I mean, the documentary, I, I, at one point I had contacted you back in the day and I was completely adamant about, upon getting the Ambler Historical Movie Theater here in outside Philadelphia to air it. And like, I called the guy, I'm like, look, I got Andre Gower on the phone. We're going to do the Monster Squad. We're going to do it. And he's like, well, let me get back to you. And I was like, have you ever seen the Monster Squad, you know? And, uh, you know, if I had my own movie theater, I would I would blast it out for everybody to see. I mean, it's so relevant still. Um, well, hopefully we can when we come out of this mess that we're in. And, and I think people are going to want people are going to be so jonesing for the things that they miss uh, that will just repeat some stuff that they've already done. And yeah. and, you know, hopefully it's it's sooner than later. And, you know, the documentary can be a part of that, even though, you know, we've been technically released on VOD in the US and Canada since October, the end of October. Um, but yeah, those are those, that's the way Monster Squad and even how we shot Wolfman's Got Nards was supposed to be shared with a group of people in a theater. And unfortunately, we had some delays in the distribution that, um, <clears throat> you know, prevented us getting out, you know, in a timely manner, you know, because we had a great festival run in 2018. And it took us you know, almost two years to get this movie distributed for, you know, one or two different reasons. Let me circle back real quick to your story yeah. of the, the guy in the house, because uh, the actor that was apparently on set all day was, like I said, a guy that uh, auditioned for the role of Dracula, but then Duncan came in and nailed it. Um, and they thought, oh, this guy would be cool. Let's bring him as that kind of Van Helsing grandson guy that they end up not shooting. And it was Liam Neeson. But, uh, oh. <laughs> so it yeah. was uh that that's always a great story who wow. the year before had just done one of my you know kid favorite fantasy movies of Krull, and uh Krull's a great movie right and uh I, it's it's so bad it's awesome i don't even <laughs> think Krull's bad i think Krull's just good and um for the time it was you know that's the stuff i liked but uh you're right you made you made a good point about um uh, there's so much in this story alone uh it, on the page in the story what people relate to what they connect to um what inspires them or what affects them whether it's the monsters whether it's the you know the, the one character or the group of characters or the group dynamic of the kids themselves that people relate to uh you've got everything from you know holocaust references to funny guys in an airplane goofing off and you know, making jokes that only, it, it was almost like a kid watching old Warner Brothers Looney Tunes of the, 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 the imagery is for the kids, but the jokes are for adults and cartoons. And there's so much in there that I'm not quite sure that Fred and Shane actually knew when they were typing. Yeah. It's crazy. The, the, that's the writing process, as you know, I mean, like uh, sometimes it, it reveals itself a little bit later and you're like, wait, where did this come from? Um, and you, it, made, it, you made the, the better point of that was the thing that, that struck a chord is that you said, I love all these things as Bob, but now I show my kids. So now you're watching Monster Squad from a parent's point of view, and it's a whole other experience. It's right. And yeah, and so different, different things work in, on different levels. And what's interesting is someone mentioned a number of months ago, and I, I, I'm not too sure they're not correct, that people may be watching and enjoying Monster Squad in another 20 years, and it, and it, and it holds up the same archetypes and 
you know, the connections and the characters and things like that, because they're so elemental and some things are so fundamental just to the human experience, but through, a, you know, a fantasy adventure story. And it made this, per these people were saying something, Monster Squad and things like Monster Squad are, we're going to be watching that in 20 and 25 years from now. And we're not going to care about the Avengers because <laughs> they don't have, they don't have those same archetypes and those connections. Yeah, yeah it's an action know, I, movie. I do feel that. Movie. I mean, it's funny you say that because the Monster Squad and like the, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I don't feel the same way about Marvel. I, I love comics, you know, but something about that Monster Squad. And like, look, let's just be honest, Andre. I'll probably for the listeners out there, this movie wouldn't work if it wasn't for your performance as Sean, you know, like the, the part where oh. like, I love this part in the film. It's like, it's not even like really like a, a dialogue thing. It's kind of like, you, it's like you're on the roof and you're watching, by the way, you know, drive-in movie theater, eating Burger King with your dad. Right. That's right. Yeah. And like, I was always like, dude, like how lucky is this kid that he can watch <laughs> movies on his roof and chill with his dad. He gets up on the roof with you and there's this moment where he's exchanging Burger King, I believe. Right. Yeah. And it's just like the whole way that he hands over, like, I think the Whopper to you and like you take it like, you know, it's like realistic to a kid because it appeals to that level. You made it believable, you know, and like, I mean, like, look, I mean, in the school, what, what was I uh, 1988, I think, I guess, you know, I'm about like what am I in second grade, third grade, my entire school talked about Monster Squad nonstop. We had the cards, we had everything, you know what I mean? Like we wanted to make steaks in a wood shop, you know what I mean? Like, and also too, to your boy Lambert, I, you know, you could tell him, I really appreciate the, the cigarette addiction I had for maybe 20 years I smoked and then I finally quit. But dude, I thought it was the coolest goddamn thing when he lit up in the, in the show. You know oh, what I mean? A, like, it's a great I mean, scene. Oh, I mean, so good. So that's good. just cinematic as it gets for kids, right? Yeah, it probably started way too many kids smoking at a young age. Uh, yeah, but it, you know what? Back in the day in the 80s, it didn't really matter. You know what I mean? Like, also, too, I mean, like, I loved in the documentary, too, how, like, you know, you, you know, addressed, like, you know, the things that weren't politically correct at the time and, like, you know, the whole woke culture thing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like that. You know what I mean? That, like, um, we, we can look back at the past and learn from it. You don't have to erase it. You know what I mean? And, like, I think that, you know, the Mantra Squad was so realistic, too. And also... I mean, you know, I mean, with Brent's performance as Horace, like I was uh, overweight, um, you know, when I was a kid, I had uh, girls call me blob, you know, and like it hurt, you know, like bad. And like, dude, when he cocks the shotgun, it <laughs> it rings out to fat kids everywhere. They're just being like, dude, you're not alone. You know what I mean? Like you can still be the baddest of the group. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it also, does. To rest in peace. I love the, you know, like how you guys, you know, paid tribute to him. I thought that was really nice. And uh, his performance is wonderful as well. Everybody in the film, you know, really just hits it. And I think that's what really comes across when you watch the film uh, at, at different times in your life. Yeah. Uh, you know, some things are dated. Some of the, you know, really, the, like, I think uh, Patrick and um, and Horace's like wardrobe is a little dated. Nothing else is really dated except for maybe some of the vehicles, things like that. But um, the the interesting thing about all the kids and even all the characters, and, and I'll go back to the, the rooftop scene with Steven, everybody just seemed that this, it was, nothing was forced. Nobody was really act, acting or trying to, to try to convince themselves that they should be there. Uh, and then trying to convince an audience that they're supposed to be there. Everybody just kind of fit in and, and was comfortable with each other. And it, I, I, that translated on screen, I think. 
um, even from someone all the way as a veteran, you know, actor like Steven and, you know, a classically trained and veteran actor like Duncan and Tom Noonan, all the way down to, you know, the kids, including myself and Ryan, who had probably, along with Robbie, had worked more than anybody in the cast, you know, as the kids. Um, but Brent uh, was fairly new and hadn't done that much. So his, mm-hmm. his greenness and his um, innocence and his kind of even naivete translated onto screen, which just made Horace even better. Uh, but then, you, you know, you, you shuffle down to the littlest kids in the group with uh, Michael Faustino and Ashley Bank. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just sitting there and they knock out their lines and Ashley is just a force. I mean, as a yeah. five-year-old Phoebe, she is an absolute force. And, uh, you know, she holds her own better than any other super young kid in any other large movie that I've seen. Oh, dude, I, 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 I will put Ashley Bank up on there when you watch it. You're like, you know what? Ashley's really good. <laughs> the ending amulet scene is just, I mean, it's impossible to get through it without shedding a tear. I mean, like, it's just so, it's breathtaking. Is it true that uh, Noonan stayed in character the whole time as Frankenstein? Uh, that, that is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, we never saw, uh, Duncan did as well. Um, dude, Duncan. Noonan, Noonan took it a little bit further. Duncan would just, you know, just kind of leave, but we never saw either one of them out of costume or out of makeup or out of character until the movie was over. And in fact, you know, after about a month of shooting or something, I, I was so like, oh, who is this guy? Who is this Tom guy? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, he's an actor. He's been in a ton of other stuff. And so I went to my, you know, we were home on a weekend and I either had my dad drive me or I rode my bike up to my local video store and I had, and I rented Manhunter to see what, oh Tom, my God, to, to see what Tom Noonan looked like. And <laughs> then of course I always joke that I wish I had never done that because he scared the shit out of me. He scared the shit out of me as Manhunter, in Manhunter, uh, which I think is Probably, I mean, I like all of the, you know, kind of uh, Thomas like, Harris movies, but yeah. uh, some are better than others. Uh, Silence of the Lambs is great. And I was like, have you seen Manhunter? It's <laughs> like, Manhunter is fantastic. It's shot really well. It's, uh, it, it's well, it's Michael I, Mann. I, it's got that feel. So we were all loving that at that time and didn't know why. But look, he's terrifying as Francis. Terrifying Lamb. in that film. Terrifying. Also, I mean, um, the FBI, what's uh, Edward Norton's character, but now, what was the, the actor who played that character in Manhunter? Uh, 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 William Peterson. Dude, that guy just kills it. You know what I mean? Like He's so good in that. He's good in everything, but it almost seems like when William Peterson does something, like he was on CSI for, well, you know, 100 yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was kind of William Peterson, but he took it to this other character. And was that's You get you start getting that in your brain. But you go back and watch, man, he's so simple, but it's so, he did effective. this. It was so effective. Uh, and he really is good <laughs> It's really good. It, it, like I saw, I think I had, I saw Silence of the Lambs first and then learned about Manhunter. By the way, did you hear, um, I don't know if you listen to podcasts, uh, Jodie Foster was on Mark Maron this week and mm-hmm. they talk about uh, Silence of the Lambs and like the process of, uh, you know, filming it. Interesting. Awesome. I, I mean, I, I love learning. Oh, I might have to check that out. Yeah. Oh, it's really good. Um, I know. I'm really enjoying the new uh, Clarice show. I've seen the pilot. Is, she, it's, that looks they're doing a good job on that. I actually, um, I did check out the first 10 minutes. I had this, 
I, I'm falling asleep. I get up so early now because of this pandemic. Like yeah. I'm at this age now where like I'm falling asleep on the couch, like during things. Like I used to like oh, crazy watching stuff like yeah, dopamine, like, you know, like let's watch a movie, let's chill out. And like, now I'm like asleep and I'm just like, who am I? But whatever. Oh, like, it's not just you. We're, we're all doing that. It's garbage. It's annoying. Uh, but I think it's yeah. a natural kind of reaction. And I, there's so like, we all have this time to watch all this, uh, oh, content's a bad word this week, but you know, we're of all of this, um, you know, film and TV projects, <laughs> uh, and we should just be gobbling it up. And I don't, I can't do that. Like I spend a couple hours a day watching, I mean, I spend more than a couple, but watching TV, but I'm watching old reruns of shows that I know the dialogue to, like which <laughs> you ones, know, which like, ones you like to watch? Oh, I'm, I'm an, I'm an ER junkie and ER is on like all day. And so, okay, I cool. Do you know the um, episode where uh, William H. Macy appears and he has his Scottish uh, cousins play the bagpipes for him in the ER? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 I work for those guys that played the bagpipes in that episode. <laughs> I do an Australian podcast with them called brother reflections. And that's, that we always go back to random uh, Kevin Bacon, six degrees off. That's yeah, awesome. It's so weird. Like, but they always tell me like, it might, you know, he, he's a really good guy. And like, they're, they're talking about, um, he's in revenge of the nerds too. I'm drawing Anthony Edwards. Uh, Anthony Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I that's think everybody... and, and other stuff and even old shows, but oh, yeah. currently right now, like, um, I'm, I, we're, we're kind of closer to my mom. And so, cause she lives by herself. And so I try to spend, you know, a ton of time with her, especially this year, cause she's going bonkers. Cause she's a very active person and, you know, she's almost 80 and uh, you know, she hates being cooped up in the house. Yeah. And so like we come up, I've been curating, like we watch a bunch of TV and Jeopardy is my favorite television show of all time. So we watch Jeopardy every night. Uh, and then we watch wheel cause she enjoys wheel, but um, and then we watch some network programming. Um, but in between that or on off nights where we don't like network programming, I've been trying to curate like a, a Dorothy film festival of movies that she's never seen because she loves watching movies and she loves stories and she loves actors. And look, she was around the business just as much as, you know, even longer than I was because of my sister. But uh, it, it's hard to curate a film festival for your mom <laughs> <laughs> with things that one, she's going to understand or like, yeah. or, you know, uh, and so that's tough. Well, she and, likes outdoor stuff, right? Have you shown her like 127 hours or like uh, any films yeah. like that? No, I haven't. Uh, and when I say active, it's not necessarily, she's like a, you know, she's like a wilderness hiker. Okay, but, okay. <laughs> uh, she just likes to be active and go and socialize and, and be outside yeah. with other people, which we can't do right now as much. But um, it's it's interesting now because, you know, we've got, uh, you know, Netflix and, and Hulu and Amazon Prime and I've got HBO Max and I love HBO Max, by the way, dude. I, I'm, I'm starting, I'm starting to be okay with it. I jumped on early. So I have like the deal. So I pay a couple, okay. like I signed up the month before they launched just to get the three or four bucks cheaper, just in case I liked it. And I have not watched, uh, I honestly got it. I, I won't lie. I got it because yeah, maybe that's some cool movies, but I was like, now I'm going to watch Game of Thrones. Cause I've only seen three episodes ever. Mm, it's okay. And I watched, I started, I'm like, I got game. Here it goes. And I watched the same three episodes. <laughs> To start again and i haven't watched the fourth one so i'm it's <laughs> so okay kind of, actually i'm kind I, of wasting my hbo max there's a lot of uh I, I like the idea of hbo max right now being able to uh, debut a new film like every two weeks because it's really helping out with people who crave the cinematic experience like uh i was just doing a um a door dash past the, the plymouth meeting mall here in philadelphia and i drove by the amc and i'm just like man dude miss that place dude it's got yeah, like we can't go in. weeds growing in like through like the cracks it looks like i am legend like apocalyptic and i'm just like 
man, what I wouldn't do to like laugh. Like, you know, the last good laugh I had, we'll tie it in with the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or whatever it was during Endgame, like one of those like jokes, those flat, like dry jokes that just kill in the audience. Right. I was just thinking about that moment the other night. I was just like, man, dude, like I, I just miss being in a group of people and laughing and like feeling things together, you know? And, and that, um, also, I just want to touch base too in that Jeopardy thing. I also yeah. too love Jeopardy. Okay. I do this thing every night. I'll be like probably like in the kitchen washing dishes or whatever. And like the theme song will come on. And then at the end, there's this brief beat, right? And then you hear this. I always yeah. try to time it perfectly and it drives my wife nuts, dude. <laughs> and dude, rest in peace to Alex Trebek. What a brave dude. You know what I mean? Like I grew up with oh, him. Goodness. I miss that mustache still. I always thought oh, he didn't yeah. look he right without the mustache. He did look different, but then he got used to it. But <laughs> I did. I didn't. I wasn't happy, Andre. I had the whole time I was like, dude, grow it back. Grow it back. And he never <laughs> he did. Me. He never did. Um, it's one of those things where you know someone uh, when you meet someone, whether you know them personally or not, uh, that has a mustache and then they get rid of it or a beard, you're like, who are you? It's, uh, it, it's only happened one other time in my life. And that was one of my, you know, fabulous teachers I had in junior high, uh, Mr. Neve, Mr. Robert Neve. And he, he had a beard. And then like one day we showed up and didn't, and we're like, what, who are you? Like, I can't listen to what you're saying because I'm trying I'm to figure out your face. Uh, but Alex did that too, but he, it's just amazing. And, and it, what it goes to show is you watch other shows that have hosts and people think hosting is easy. And whether it's a game show or a talk show, hosting is not easy. It's a skill. Uh, it's an innate skill, I think. Uh, some people have a natural ability over others, but it's also a, a learned over time and a honed skill. And he was absolutely one of the best. And um Look, I, I'm looking forward to you know seeing other faces on it, but I'm selfish. I, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather keep Alex for you know the next hundred years, but we Same. can't have. Yeah, I, I don't feel right watching it now. It's like he's he's you know he's doing a good job and stuff, but it's like I don't know. I mean. I just feel weird about it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's weird. I think we both grew up it. in the same time period where like, uh, you know, like these things of pop culture had such like weight on us because, you know, it also ties in with the monster squad. Like these are the things that existed before the internet ruined our lives. You know what I mean? Like the internet yeah. provided us with constant entertainment. And I, I miss and long for the days where you had to earn your entertainment. You know, you had to like, be good that week so your mom would like take you to the you know the indoor shopping center to see the monster squad you know what i mean like right we're like renting something like i remember renting the monster squad on vhs tape and being traumatized by the experience because i would always miss it by like an hour like the guy the clerk would be like oh you just missed it right and then i had the same experience with predator 2 <laughs> like the two films together are synonymous with like just wanting to own the media you know and like I don't think kids, you know, like when I say kids, but like anybody who didn't grow up with that type of feat doesn't appreciate the art of pop culture, you know, and like. Well, I think it's almost even because you mentioned it before it, it ties in with what number one, the cinematic experience is by uh, experiencing this with a group of people that you may or may not know uh, in the same shared space. And I have a whole thing that, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of crafted over the last couple of years of, you know, what the movie theater is back to, you know, it, it really is, you know, what your tribe used to sit around a campfire and tell stories in your mythology around a flickering light. And that was your entertainment, you know, as a tribe, you know, whether you were, you know, you know, a thousand years ago or, and the, the, the movies just became our new campfire. So we'd get together with our tribe or our village folk 
and we would sit around in this darkened space and look at a flickering light and get told stories. And so we really haven't changed as humans anthropologically for a while. And sociologically, we've changed just because society has changed. But we still sit around in a group and listen to mythology stories around a flickering light. And that was what the movie theater was. TV sort of took that over, but it made your village smaller. But... <clears throat> you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a neat conversation to have, but you touched on something which I've been talking about even more lately that I like better is you said, you know, going to the mall or earning your entertainment. Uh, but also you also had to create your entertainment. You had to imagine you went out in your backyard or down the street and you, you, if you were playing by yourself, you weren't by yourself because you had your brain and your imagination and you could create armies or, you know, winged creatures or fighter squadrons or cowboys and Indians and cops and robbers or whatever it was. Um, and then if you had friends that were cool enough to play with you, if you were, you know, if they didn't, you know, if they jived with the same thing, not just sports, not that's different. Um, but I was very imaginative and creative by myself. I'd go out and play by myself for hours. So, <clears throat> excuse me. That was a major part of it. But the cooler thing that I like that you also mentioned is the process of going to either the theater or going maybe to the video store. That was a process and it was an experience. And sometimes it was its own adventure just to get to the entertainment. <laughs> like let's take going to the mall to meet up with two or three of your friends to see a movie on a Saturday afternoon. How are you getting there? You had, to, you had to either get one of your parents to drive you, or if you were lucky enough to live close enough, you could ride your bikes. But were, was Andre going to meet, Bob, meet up my house and then we'll ride together? Uh, you know, and then we'll park our bikes and lock them up in the rack and then we'll walk around the mall early uh, and, you know, get an Orange Julius and, you know, mm -hmm. see if we know any of the cute girls walking around and then we'll go to the theater. Um, and then it was that process of getting home. So, you know, either playing in the backyard or, you know, even going to the movie theater or riding to the video store, there was anticipation and planning and it became an experience, it became your own adventure. You had to go on this trek, this journey to actually just get your eyeballs filled with stuff. And we don't have that anymore because we just roll over and click Hulu and we're yeah. done. And done. there's no, there's no adventure. There's no process. There's no planning. Mm -hmm. The only planning uh, actually what I really like when, and I struggle with it too, but I love when people complain because I complain about the same shit is I spend, I have literally spent an hour scrolling and interfacing with different services, figuring out what to watch. And I could have already watched something. <laughs> yeah. What is that too? Like, you know, that like kind of just developed recently too. It's just, I think our brains are over occupied by so much different media. There's so many things attaching ourselves like you know my cell phone's not here where's my cell phone you know what i mean like what where's my supercomputer that's ruining my life is more like the you know i mean like i make extra money doing doordash and i never thought in a million years my boss would be a phone you know what i mean like <laughs> kid watching the monster squad no way man you know like and also too like that i talk about it all the time on the bobcast just basically that that old school approach towards not just you know cinema but also like you know songs like music and like mixtapes and like catching the tail end of a song and being like wait a minute who who's that and like not being able to get it out of your head because nobody knows no uh mark maron has a great bit about that too as well one of his uh, netflix comedy specials but like we don't know we, there's no longer the 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 risk reward it's gone you know what i mean like i'm going to risk it all by driving all the way or excuse me riding my bike all the way to blockbuster just to see that there's no monster squad behind the monster squad box right <laughs> defeating feeling of like not being able to see it and also too like 
the idea that you can only rent it for one night. You know what I mean? Like I used to like, I used to be like, well, how many times do you think I could watch it? If I get up early enough, I could probably watch it because it's only like this long and then like map it out. You know what I mean? As somebody would today with like, you know, I really don't, I don't know. I mean, and it's scary because my son's five and like, you know, he's not going to understand this because we watch, you know, the Mandalorian, which is just, you know, using cutting edge technology. We got people getting fired from their jobs. We got lead actors. We're not sure in the robot suit or not. You know what I mean? Like, it's fascinating to me. But I just want to well, make him know, and like that's the way we we do it, is by watching the Monster Squad because it's like, it really it means so much to so many different people. And uh, you know, I mean, as we we wrap up today's show because I I see that we're at the almost at the hour mark. I just I'm curious because like I've read some stuff online, Decker, you know, Black talking about this, and like the reason there is no I they don't want to do a sequel is because they think it's too much like everything else going on with, you know, the older kids getting together to defeat the, you know, Stephen King, it villain, stuff like that. Yeah, it's a great, that's a great bit. <laughs> has there has there ever been talk of like approaching it from a different angle? Like I like I've thought about this moment probably since I saw the film in 1988. Right. So I have written many, like as you were mentioning earlier, like these like scenes that you would make out in the, you know the battlefields of your imagination. Yeah. Using that tool to like make worlds. I made so many sequels to the Monster Squad. <laughs> the one that I always came back to, and I, like maybe like 10 years ago when like I, I just my wife was like, Hey, you love movies so much. Why don't you go to Monco Community College and learn how to write screenplays? I I studied the Monster Squad screenplay. I loved it, you know what I mean? And I always thought it'd be cool if there was a sequel where like you know how like the army shows up at the end and the, you know, we talked to Eugene and stuff like that. Well, what if the army didn't show up to help? What if the army showed up to just get rid of everything? Wipe the scene, take the bodies of, you know, the wolfman, the bride, the creature, you know, for nefarious purposes, honestly. And then we, you know, tune into Sean's character who's now like, you know, in his mid forties and like, he's got a wife, he's got a kid. And like, his wife doesn't want to hear about fucking Frankenstein no more she's done with it you know what I mean like she tells him it's time to move on you're a father now and like there's a part of him that knows that he needs to let go of this but I mean there's like this online presence and like instead of like it being like you know he has to fight the monsters again like he's at he's fighting himself you know what I mean like he's got this problem inside of him that he can't get out and then like I think it'd be great if like I mean obviously we want to see Duncan make a return. Uh, Duncan I believe is like what almost like seventy. It's a prime age for actors right now to make a really oh. fantastic return to the silver screen. Perhaps he comes back as a political figure. Perhaps perhaps he comes back as like some sort of like you know inspirational speaker online. You know what I mean? And then like all of a sudden Sean sees that and he's like I told you so. And then like that would be like the driving point. But it's also like a mental story like. I always thought in my head, like, oh, they showed up and everybody was like, hey, Sean, great job. You killed the monsters, you know? But like, what would that be like for Sean growing up? And then I guess my question is for you, <laughs> what would you want to see in a sequel? I, I, I think it runs this. That's not a bad idea. I like that. You know, it's interesting you said if the army showed up and then just took everything away to hide it. Um, then and you we have... pick up right there. We push in on like the creature's body being like pulled into like, you know, the trucks in yeah. 87. You don't have to show you guys. We'll just film, you know, elsewhere. But well, then you have the, pre the predator that Shane and Fred wrote, which is, you know, they kept the old alien technology and, you know, they've got it. Uh, 
you know, in, you know, 30 years later and they're using it against the, you know, new super predator that comes back. Yeah. They should uh, wait it for Arnold's cameo at the end. They're really tied together, but that's a different podcast. Well, that, yeah. They, I think they were thinking about that. Um, they were, they were, I mean, it would have been great. I thought I heard it was going to be Ripley too. At one point. Uh, that would have been a super mashup. The, you know, I think it's, you know, we've sat around, you know, we being me, Ryan and Ashley and maybe Fred on the road or something and sat around of, you know, if there's a sequel, maybe it's like super nineties indie field, but we're all old and we're literally sitting around a coffee shop and that's where the movie takes place. And, but, you know, I, you know, your idea of, you know, maybe it's the inner, you know, the inner monsters that you're fighting because what do you else do you do with your life after you went through that as a kid? Like how can the rest of your world, you know, you know, add up or. How do you go through puberty knowing that you kill, you know, you were responsible for saving the world. Also, yeah, no one believes you. It's like, oh, you're just trying to score. <laughs> you're like, like no, you really growing up and having kids and being at family barbecues, looking at each other, just knowing that no know. one else can know. Like, it's not yeah. the you don't tell anybody because no one would ever believe you. Um, yeah, I, I think those are some cool things to hit on. Um, you know, but going for, I think if you were going to make some, I think it has the best story as a sequel wise, kind of has all of those elements used strategically. Uh, but also a reason to, you know, be back, quote unquote, in in action or for some reason, uh, because this is sort of kind of the this is the the, the cliche version of it. But we have, you know, you'd have to have, have some reason to get back together or, or or have some obstacle to 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 overcome. Yeah, uh, and it's got to be you know uh, dangerous and it's got to be uh, you know risky. And it's, so you're starting another adventure, but how do you elevate that, you know, from what we had? Uh, but then it's also, and then there's some ways you can do that. And some have been, you know, kind of jotted down as notes and some ideas. Um, I think you've got to, and then it's also got to be a, a, a passing of the torch type thing. Because if this thing goes on every hundred years, uh, you've got to have some passing of the torch. But I think there's some interesting stuff with inside the Monster Squad kind of universe, if the, you know, if there is one, um, that yeah okay it's every hundred years but we also know that they blew it in 87 um did we blow it or did we solve it in 1987 uh and we have to wait a hundred years because that's that's how they blew it in 87 it was like almost full circle now we talked about that deleted scene yeah um that's why i always like when i watch monster squad seeing duncan play dracula he's really pissed like he's he's just focused and pissed and he doesn't care. Why? Because why is he walk around, tear the door off his own car, and then go and throw dynamite in a treehouse where he thinks five kids are? So he's literally blowing up five little kids. He doesn't care. Why? It's because he's been walking around for a hundred years waiting Can't for die. this moment, and we're in his way. Yeah. And he's not getting in his way. I want to know what Dracula was doing for a hundred years since he escaped in the woods after he got unstaked and. 1887 and so if we ever made a sequel we have to have that deleted scene that would be interesting yeah and so he's been walking around i think there's some great stories of what duncan's dracula was doing in the 1920s what was he doing during world war one i think he's part of world war one you know i think what was he doing during you know uh when the panama canal was getting built what was he doing in the second world war uh was he in america was he in south america was he in asia like what was dracula doing i think why was he on the plane well, yeah. got him on the, you know, like uh, well, he was traveling, it like traveling. Show, Andre, to be honest, like I don't want it. To just oh, it is. Movie. Yeah, no, it would be a, it TV would, it could be, be a premium form, um, 
you know, and maybe it's a, you know, it's a 10 episode thing and he goes through a decade an episode. Um, oh yeah. You know, it'd be fantastic. You know so, what I mean? Uh, and I just want to see, you know, and I, and Duncan has to do it. We can de-age him. We did it in the Irishman. We could do it to Duncan. Uh, Cause I don't want anybody else playing a young Duncan or young Dracula. Other than no, he, he he definitely would have to come back and like you know just like there's so many ways you can go with it. It's just yeah. such a great story. So that's know? a prequel. That's not even a sequel. That's more of a prequel story type thing, which I think is fun. Prequel more fun than anything. But it's if it's with us or our characters, it's got to be a reason to get back. An interesting story. You tweak some plot holes that we didn't have. You fill in some of the gaps of the payoffs that we didn't get setups and the setups that we didn't get payoffs in the in the '87 film. Uh, and then it's got to be a passing of the torch. So there's got to be another kids movie. So there's got to be kids involved. And um, look, I always joke, there's a really interesting, uh, you know, kind of framework of a story for a sequel that would work. Um, and um, it's, you know, I, I banged that out. Like we would all sit around and throw ideas around. And I kind of came up with this framework of what it, what it could be. And everybody was like, yo, that's really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, you know, so it'd just be interesting. Um, I love, I almost love the prequel thing, you know, even more than a, than a sequel, just uh, as content. But, you know, why not do both? Everybody's clamoring for, uh, you know, what are we calling it now? Oh, yeah, cinema, cinema, film, TV, streaming stuff. We can't call it content this week. Um, it, it, and I don't not necessarily disagree. I don't like the word content, but content is something that fills a, a, a space. So it's an easy word. And we've all gotten, um, you know, used to using it. But it's... Uh, content have you been on a clubhouse yet I, I have not um i i haven't experienced it yet so i can't poo-poo it or celebrate it uh i've known about crazy. it it's kind of crazy i recommend it if i had any invites left i totally would send you one but i mean I've it's, had it's also few, full of people like you're gonna fix your life you're gonna follow me and like it's <laughs> it's a lot of that but it is interesting there's there's a great platform there's a always uh pop culture rooms where they talk um you know everything from the monster squad to wandavision whatever but yeah can you tell me um before we go a little bit about fitter piper uh yeah um in, in what context what do you want to know well just tell the <laughs> listeners what's going on like what you're working on now like you know oh yeah what's um, on the horizon. Well, uh, you know you mentioned fitter piper that's the the name of my company which is um you know kind of multifaceted it's not just one thing it's it, it's it's a production company yes uh, but that, you know, we're kind of a two-way street there. Um, you know, do we, um, do we create and develop and produce uh, content uh, uh, or films and TV projects? Uh, yes. Uh, but we can also be, uh, you know, jump in and be, be hired to actually make other people's things too, because it's sort of a two-way street. Because I know, I know both sides of the industry there, kind of the, the, the development and the creative side and also the physical production side. And you know, and, and, and another side to it is, you know, kind of the middle of it. You can't do anything without, you know, teaming up with someone that's actually going to pay for it or pay for, for it yourself or how are you going to get something financed to actually be shot or even developed. So it's kind of all encompassing there. Uh, you know, Wolfman's Got Nards was, uh, you know, one of the first bigger projects. Uh, I had, you know, two other projects that were kind of in the works over the last couple of years. One was a, a, a TV concept um, that had fits and starts um, at, at actually some pretty cool places. Uh, and then when the documentary kicked off and I sold this other show that we did, it kind of went on the back burner, but that's a great show involving former child stars um, in this kind of cool world um, that uh, is an interesting concept. And that's still out there. Um, 
I, you know, I did a show that I sold to, uh, to Nerdist uh, when they had their uh, digital channel at Ryan Lambert and I co-hosted called Short Ends uh, that we did uh, 24 episodes of that. And we showcased short films and, and filmmakers that make shorts and talked about their process and gave them a platform to show their, their short films, which was awesome. Uh, I would love to that to continue. Uh, and maybe that could be kicked in, you know, at, a, at, a, at another home some, at some point, which I would love to do. Um, maybe during COVID times, I mean, that's a great, a, another great thing to kind of get off the ground because it's easy to do and low footprint. Uh, right now, there's um, my guy, Henry McComas, that uh, was kind of the, the, you know, the main guy with me on Wolfman's Got Nards. Um, that was at the time, you know, a, a producer and filmmaker at uh, Pilgrim Media Group. And his production team, um, which really what made the documentary happen, that those guys were fantastic. Uh, Henry's a very creative guy. He's a skilled filmmaker. He's a great storyteller. Uh, he has a, a, a kind of a genre narrative script that I'm a producer on right now. So um, my company's not, I, I'm just on it, you know, kind of as a producer. I want to get, you know, I try to help what I can to get Henry's movie made because he's directing it as well. I love the concept. And we've been working on that for about a year, year and a half, and then ran right into, you know, kind of pandemic times. Uh, but we're still trucking along on that. And then there's always other projects that are, you know, always on the slate or in the hopper. And you never know what's right around the corner. That's what's weird about this industry. You could have three or four or five projects that you just hit hard and you constantly talk about or pitch. Uh, and then you think of something the night before you have a meeting and that's the thing that someone wants. It's, uh, that's what happened with short ends. It was amazing. So you got to have more than one ball in the air and you got to juggle constantly and you've got to be flexible and you've got to be, accepting of the fact that your favorite thing that you think is the best thing ever that is just not going to land with somebody until way, way, way down the line or if ever. Um, so that's always my advice to people is like, if you've got one thing, like there, there's a path to hit that hard. And, you, but I suggest having more than one angle and how I kind of do it with Fitter Piper. Like I said, not only on the, the foundation of it, is it a two-way street, whether it's, you know, myself or, you know, people that are involved create and develop and go out and, 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 and pitch and sell and make deals for projects that we've come up with. Uh, but it can also be a turnkey thing where it's like, I know someone that is geared up and ready to make this, but they need the people to get it done. And so that's where the production, you know, the actual physical production come in. Uh, but it's also on the, uh, the fact that it's not just our, you know, my stuff or people that I know stuff. I have most of the stuff that I talk about or try to pitch or try to find a home for, I didn't create. Um, you know, it's other people, great creators, great screenwriters, um, young filmmakers that you know, I enjoy working with uh, and just try to have meetings and talk about their stuff. And um, that's what's fun. Um, a lot of people- altruistic are, of you. you well, know. I don't know if it's, yeah, it or is. maybe I, I, try to, I try to avoid that by also saying it's just smarter <laughs> because it's really hard to just get your shit made. Yeah. Um, it's hard to get anything made, but most people just go out there and pitch their own stuff, which is great. Um, it's not just, a, I love my stuff that I've come, I, I, I dig the stuff that I created, whatever is it that, but around the corner, I can meet someone that, or I've known someone for years and has something that's so much better that needs to get made. Uh, I don't, I, I love putting effort into trying to connect those dots. Um, and again, on the smart side of it, it's probably smarter because, you know, just odds statistically, it's very hard to get anything made in this, in this business, even though we have more content than we could ever possibly watch at our fingertips. Like we've been lamenting, uh, we celebrate that and lament it at the same time. You're right about that. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like just because you have an idea for a movie or a pilot for a TV show that all you have to do is think it and then go have a meeting and it gets made next week. 
That is so far from the truth. Because even though we have a million things out there to choose from, there's a billion things that people are trying to get through the door. And it, it's, it's, it's how you approach it. It's who you know. It's what you know. Um, it's, and it's a lot of timing and, and, and luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could speak at length to that. But I mean, what I'm thinking of right now, though, is one, I'm stoked that my favorite childhood actor from my favorite childhood movie grew up and just said what you just said you know what i mean like you could either go this way or go that way you know what i mean but you chose to go the right way and it seems to me that like you know you survived you know the the possible pitfalls of being a childhood actor and like you're doing the right thing and you're doing what you love so for that i'm uh really grateful for today you know because it's like like i said before like i the seven-year-old thanks you the 41 year old thanks you you know what i mean like you, those cards i made in, in uh class with my buddies it wasn't in vain man it made it made no, sense you, yeah you uh you know you woke up you had that conversation with your old self or your young self and and here we are now we get to hang out and um you know let's not make this the last uh bobcast let's do it again and talk about something completely different and um look i i i don't it's not that I mind talk. I don't mind talking about monster squad or how it makes people feel or the cool things. Cause we can always pluck something fresh out of that. Cause every time I'm talking about it with someone like you, Bob, it, it, it's a, it's a new story and it's fresh and it's the first time that you've ever done it. So, you know, it brings this whole other thing into your world and you know, who's not going to like that in my position, you know, that's, it's super yeah. cool. Um, but I, I love seeing when people connect with something um, you know, no matter what it is, because there's things that I've connected with that aren't Monster Squad. I was in the Monster Squad. I saw the sausage made, you know, I just, it's different. Um, I'm connected to that movie and that movie impacted me in a different way than, you know, you did growing up in, in Philadelphia um, or, you know, so-and-so did in Florida or vice versa. And, but it's fascinating, um, uh, you know, on, on how you can connect to something and how something can impact you. And that's really the essence of the documentary. It's, you know, the documentary isn't a, a making of doc. It's not a where are they now. It's not a, um, and it's not a, hopefully it's not this just giant spoonful of nostalgia crammed down your throat. Um, we have elements of all of that because you have to, but really what it was, it was we wanted to interrogate a little bit why this movie impacted that's what I loved so much about the documentary. It felt like a celebration rather than like, well, and then we had to have Tom Noonan come in to set a little early because right. the makeup was so hard. You know, like I, I love that it was like showing people and like, you know, very similar to, uh, you know, like uh, there's a, uh, the only time I ever felt that before is when I went to see The Room once before like the disaster artist came out. And I was like, what is this? Like <laughs> this like feeling of like, you know, being in a group of people who love something so much and it means so much to them. And it's fictional. And like, that's such an amazing part of like the human condition that I explore a lot on the Bobcast is like how these pieces of pop culture can like resonate in you to produce an emotion off of something that was just, as you say, sausage making, you know what I mean? Like that fine, like, you know, moment in cinema where you connect and it's been so many plus years since that film has like, you know, entered your life. I, I find it fascinating. And that's what I miss the most about cinema and um, like I said before, I'll put some links down here for people. If you haven't seen Wolfman, Wolfman's Got Nards, it's a great documentary. Uh, the Legion of uh, Friends who uh, text me questions. I'm sorry I didn't get to them. Just not going to do it. You know what I mean? Like, I want my guest to be able to have his time. Uh, I'm like, ask, ask, a, ask one or two. I'm, I don't, I'm fine. I'm good if you have some questions. All right, you know what? I, we won't, I got like 10 minutes before I got to pick up my kid, but here we go. Yeah, all right, do so it. Go on. Um, can we talk about, uh, where's my notes? 
Okay, a uh, question from my cousin. He wants to know about uh, Carl's process getting jacked up during like the Wolfman scenes. In particular, I don't know if you were on set for this, but I mean, the the phone booth sequence is what he was asking. I'm like, yeah, he wasn't in that scene. Like, what was like when you were on set with Carl? Like, what was like? How did he get so jacked up to play the Wolfman? You know, I think it was a. Uh, you know, it's obviously because John Greaves plays the guy that turns into Wolfman, and then Carl Tilbot was the guy in the suit. And if anybody knows anybody that's ever played a creature or been in a creature suit it, that is a lot of hard work like we had the easy we had the easy time all we had to do was stand there be corny and say lines written by other people um and but someone like carl getting into i mean it's a full body you know almost a full body suit uh, the gill man was a full body like one piece yeah, that's a great in your, part in your of the in it. um but you know being in that helmet and the shoulder pads and the fur and and trying to maneuver and since you mentioned the funny part your cousin did uh of the phone booth scene is you know carl like we were hanging out with him you know years and years ago and he was so pissed because you know he they break you know he breaks the the the, the phone booth so it's almost sort of like a one like you get one shot at doing that and he was he was almost mad because he doesn't he was like they were so mad i want to do it again i can't see i couldn't see out of that helmet and like when I turned, I had to, you know, you know, you know, bow up and like get out and break out of the the phone booth. I got caught. I got stuck. And so you don't really see it, but I know like I struggled to get out. And I was like, actually, it just translate like you were so big and you transferred like that was part of it. Was it almost seems like it was planned. But he got he was so mad uh, on the day I think because he got stuck and he thought it looked bad and he was like, I got to do another one. I got to do another one because I got stuck. And they're like. No, we're moving on. We can only do one of those. And he was like, no, I got stuck. I screwed, I screwed it up. And I was like, Carl, I don't think anybody thinks you screwed that up. I, I think it looks pretty rad. And only people will know if you mention it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things like the stormtrooper hitting his head on the door. Um, but I don't even think it's that obvious, right? I don't even think it's that obvious. I think it is an element of like this dude just got, you know, this creature just evolved in this small space and I had to get get the F out. Um, but I mean, it's a lot of work for those guys. And I wasn't on set at that time because as you may or may not know with kids, they can only be on set for a certain amount of time, depending on your age. And uh, usually you've got to shoot the kids out, especially in the nighttime stuff and they've got to go. And then the adults stay around and make movies until the wee hours of the night. And I think that was shot, you know, kind of later on in the day that we weren't there on Universal or Warner Brothers Backlot. Um, I think that was near the swamp too. So I think it was universal, but um, yeah, I mean, those guys and the makeup and all that, that was, that's so much harder work. I yeah. Mean, it's insane. it's insane. By the way, the, the lighting during the swamp sequence was amazing. Like, you know what I mean? Like to film that at night, like it, I, I have just the way the creature comes out of the water and throws, you know, Frank's box up there. It's just, it's stuck in my mind. Uh, yeah, those are great stuff. From, uh, Steve, who's a screenplay writer. He wants to know if uh, Shane Black was on set. Uh, sure. Every, yeah. Um, obviously Fred was, cause he was also the director, but uh, yeah, Shane was there for, I mean, as I recall, pretty much most of the time. Um, he, he also, on set? I'm sorry. Was there any rewrites written on set for it? Oh, I'm, I'm sure they were not that, not I that I wrote. Dialogue, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that, I mean, I think they were Especially. working on that constantly, especially as we were trimming pages and rewriting scenes, you know, him and Fred had to go and, and kind of work on that on a, I think on a constant basis. Uh, but that was, you know, a three or three and a half month shoot constant. And I only had one day off in like three months. And I just, cause I think I was just sick and worn out one day and they had to like shoot around me. 
Um, and I, re I remember being that sick and that worn out. I think it was a Friday, which was good because I had the weekend to rest. But uh, I mean, it's a lot of work to make a movie like that, and especially when you're dealing with kids and effects and monsters and locations and all that. That's that's a big endeavor. Um, and that can put a toll on you as a production or a director or a producer, things like that. Like I said, we were the kids in the movie. We had, we had the, we had, we had it easy and it was still a lot of work. Yeah. Um, next question comes from Lily. Um, what is your favorite scene in the monster squad? Uh, it's a good question. Um, the, the rooftop scene always comes up. Um, and it's kind of a short scene, but I, I love the scene between Sean and Dell just in the bathroom, like yeah. when they're just talking, uh, because all of a sudden you're supposed to be in this monster adventure movie and it's just a kid and his dad while he's shaving. Like we've all been in that bathroom, you know, if, if, if you grew up with your dad, um, yeah. which not all of us, you know, we, I, I did. And I was like, oh, this is like being in the bathroom when your dad's shaving or, um, you know, combing his hair after getting out of the shower or something and having these just regular kid random conversations about can I go see this movie and the answer is no um <laughs> uh, so I love that scene but I'll circle back I, I, I do like the rooftop scene just because it's so different it's so imaginative you know and, and 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 it shows the ingenuity of Sean but also all the other kids at the movie but like you know he it, it's a it's kind of an aside thing but he he jerry rigs with aluminum foil and an antenna his small box radio to pick up the radio signal from the drive-in so he can watch it on his roof. Which is awesome, yeah. Like, which is just really cool. And then the dad comes. Musk, and, yeah. yeah, so I, I, I love that little bit. And I, and I think that scene worked, like you were mentioning before, uh, mostly due to uh, Stephen and I, you know, I, I, we got along, but he was also a dad of, of two, two younger kids at the time. Like one was, a, was our age or a little bit old. Gabriel was a year or two older. And um, his middle child was a was four or five years younger so he knew how to be around kids and what that scene would be like and so you just follow his lead um so that's a great scene i just recalling in my head wasn't there i mean i know it's expressed in the film and you can kind of pick it up but wasn't there more um pages in the original script which touched upon the fact that the sean's parents were like you know in the middle of like you know separating or oh, like yeah yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so that's that another part of the whole storyline of, of, of the characters is, you know, Dell and Emily are like, they're, this marriage is over. It's disintegrating uh, before your eyes. And, and at one point, what a lot of kids didn't see, unless you saw it in the movie theater or you saw it on, uh, I think maybe the Japanese laser disc until you saw it in 06 in the theater again on 35 millimeter, no one saw this movie in widescreen with all wow. the imagery on, in, in the box. And one of the things that we miss is the candle blinking out when Emily's in the closet after the, she has the scene with Phoebe and says, as long as the candles lit, the, you know, the monster keeps the monsters <sighs> away. And then she's in the house by herself and down in the right-hand corner, just out of nowhere, the candle blinks out and she's in the closet and she looks around and, but we don't know why she's looked around if you're watching on VHS or on HBO. Uh, the other thing is when, which is a great scene when Dracula comes up and demolishes our, you know, our, our just little white picket fence and then uh, get flies away after he's blown us up, and uh, Sapir gets uh, Stan Shaw gets blown up in the car. Uh, when Dell runs in the house to get the walkie-talkie, um, you see the luggage by the door because Emily's leaving because there was a scene yes. shot where she's coming, she's coming down the stairs with luggage, like she's out, like she's leaving. Um, so not only is the family disintegrating, but the world is coming to family is coming apart. Oh, so it's God. it's 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 a double kind of move there. 
Uh, and that's what, you know, kind of the end when it, you know, when, when, holy shit, what's going on. And, you know, the parents are finally realizing. So good. When she's like, Dal, 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 like the, the, the voice, but just like that whole sequence, even the way he throws the dynamite into it so lavishly and like elegant, you know what I mean? Like the talks. Oh, yeah. Meeting adjourned, you know what I mean? Like, it's so good. Like the action beats in that film, like I studied, like, you know, in the script, like, okay, so where is it going to like, you know, like the punchline or like whatever's happening, you know, there's so many moments in that film that are just so well-placed, you know, I mean, even like, you know, I mean, from like, you know, the, the small scene of just the, the mummy, like the cut from the museum to the mummy. I always love. Oh yeah, it's, it's 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 a great line because and that's an obvious joke. It's an obvious smash. It's so great, play. you know. It's like you know, you're obviously wrong, silly old adult. Cop. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's and that's definitely. what the joke is. Like obviously they can't get yeah. it. Um, but I mean that's that's a testament to kind of Shane's dialogue writing and Fred's story kind of creation of of where all that stuff blends. And if you watch a Shane Black movie uh, that he's written and or directed, uh, you kind of know it. Um, you can kind of recognize it all the way from. Monster Squad to, you know, Lethal Weapon to Last Boy Scout to Long Kiss Goodnight. And then my favorite Shane Black movie is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, um, so. uh, which is, it's just so simple and it's just so, care it's just dialogue driven, the whole thing. And resurrected two careers. And um, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. is now Iron Man because of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Because um, he was gone. Like he was never working again. He was, he <laughs> and, was canceled. You he's know, he's canceled, canceled before anybody. He's canceled <laughs> you know I mean? before canceled, canceling <laughs> became a thing. And then uh, you watch the Nice Guys and uh, even the New Predator, uh, which, uh, you know, the, the overall movie, uh, I, I, I would have, as a personal selfish thing, would like to see different stuff. But there's some funny stuff in there. But I think um, at the end of that, I think a studio came in and kind of stomped on it a little bit. But uh, the, the stuff between the, you know, the because the, that movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, that's all the movie is. You, uh, yeah. you reminded me of something like uh, as a kid without the internet, I used to study the credits, you know what I mean? And like, be like, okay, so who wrote this? And then like, I would study the credits on other films and uh, maybe uh, like around 88, 89, uh, my dad's like, hey, I'm gonna let you watch this movie. It's called Predator. And I'm like, all right, sweet. And then they show like the picture, you know, they show the character's name and it says Shane Black right there. And I was like, yeah, wait. The guy in Predator wrote the Monster Squad, and like you know, I'm asking my dad like he's Google or Alexa, you know what I mean? He's like, yeah. I don't know, Bob, and he's not gonna know. Movie, you know what I mean? He's not. Um, but yeah, that whole Predator thing is very interesting because it's all kind of tied into the same time. Because you know, you may or may not know, your listeners may not know the whole Predator. You know, they shot for like two or three weeks. Yeah, amazing. And it shut down with John Claude Van Damme in the red chicken suit, you know, and all that, and they just shut it down. Uh, and then Schwarzenegger was like, "Why don't we?" Uh, we worked with these uh, really good effects guys on Terminator. Why don't we let them have a shot at creating this, this creature, this alien. And that was all at the same time. And when you look at the predator and if you look at Gilman, that's just the same thing, you know, with the paint scheme, yeah. kind of the, the way the body, the, the build, the creature build was built and that's Steve Wang and Matt Rose and, mm -hmm. and, and um, uh, Stan Winston's shop. But Shane got brought in, to uh by the producers or either McTiernan himself to kind of uh to script doctor and kind of rewrite yes it, yeah. the stuff and i you know that was a because uh and he said well i'm and you can be in the movie but i think the joke was uh, which i think is awesome because shane's an actor that's what he that's what he is he's an you want to be an actor and he's a fantastic actor and uh he was like well we want you to script doctor more than act so 
I, I, that's why I think Shane's character dies first. <laughs> so we got to get you out so you don't worry about acting so much. But there's so much great stuff in the banter between the squad uh, of in the Predator, and it's all it's all it's all kind of it's all funny stuff, and and that's all kind of tied in the same in the same orbit. Uh, you know, Stan Winston and the way the creatures look, and I love I love the first I love the first Predator. Same, uh, it's, it's such a it's movie. such a well paced thriller, you know, I, and I like love uh, all the characters and. Um, you know, and I think subsequent ones have, have been cool too. Uh, but yeah, Shane's, you definitely know when you're watching a Shane Black movie. And I just showed part of uh, Dorothy's film festival list the curation was the nice guys. Uh, Cause she oh, likes, cool. Go- she likes Gosling and Russell Crowe. And um, she enjoyed the nice guys, even though a lot of stuff, you know, flies, flies by Dorothy a little bit, or you got to rewind and redo or explain some stuff. Cause if a dialogue's really quick or, you know, there's, yeah. you know, there's accents or something, she's like, wait, I didn't catch that. Go back. Or what was that? Uh, and Shane Black stuff moves really quick. <laughs> you, you make me think like so much like, you know, like tying it back to earning your entertainment too. Like the movies, like back in the day were so like, they would, you know, shoot two weeks with Eric Stoltz and be like, maybe he's Marty and then be like, no, let's get Michael J. Fox. He's got the deal coming. You know what I mean? Like they would, right. they would take the time then to be like, no, it's just not like the predator movie does not work with that original suit at all. It just doesn't. Yeah. It just looked, I th- apparently just looked, I mean, as we've seen, have you ever seen it? Like, yeah. It's awful. It's I so mean, it's, weird looking it's, and it's so such a weird, weird choice, but it's also a rush choice. I believe because they were like, we got a film, you know, like now, but dude, I could talk to you like forever about this stuff, you know? Well, I, let's do another episode. We'll talk other stuff. Yeah. I got to pick up my son, Tyler, the next generation. <laughs> uh, enthusiast for the monster squad uh thank you so much for making the dream come true today i'll put some links down where you can see the film uh, wolfman's got nards thank you bro yeah man no thanks for having me and like i said let's uh hit me up let's do it again and we'll talk even more in depth or answer more questions from your folks and uh you know we'll, we'll waste we'll waste some more time like that <laughs> All right, it sounds like a, a plan uh my name is bob and this has been another episode of bobcast <laughs>